Good morning, everyone. Will you all pray with me as we turn our attention to God's Word? Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for this time of worship that we've had this morning just to sing the praises of your holiness. And God, we pray this morning that you would work through your Word to help us reflect that holiness in our own lives and as a church. Lord, would you bring that about uh, for our good and for your glory, Lord? We ask and pray your, your favor and blessing on this time in your word, Lord, because we know that no good comes apart from the work of your spirit. So we ask for that and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, when we um, think about certain uh, categories of people, we have certain expectations for them. And, and as I think about this, I'm thinking specifically uh, about different occupations. So, for example, what do you expect from a comedian? That he'd be funny, right? And it's an awful disappointment when they're not funny, okay? Okay, so what would you expect from a nurse? Yeah, that, that the nurse would be caring, that she would be caring, and it's very frustrating if they're not caring. What would you expect from a professional singer? What? Yeah, to be a good singer, right? To have a great voice, Okay. What about, uh, what would you expect from a server at a restaurant? What would you expect? Service. Great service. And again, it's frustrating when you don't get that great service, right? Now, we could do this for any number of other groups. We could do it for mothers, fathers, pastors, professors, lawyers, auto mechanics, you name it. The, the point is, is that, yes, there are differences and there are limits, but for all of these different groups, there are certain core characteristics that we would expect from them. So it is with the church. The question is, what should God's people be like? What kind of core character should the community of faith have? Now, in the end, our expectations don't really matter that much. It's God's church Christ is the head of his church. He's the one that gets to set the expectations. We're not here to please man, but to please God. So really the question is, what does God expect of his people? Now, as, as we've gone through the book of Deuteronomy together, we've seen that Moses is instructing God's people how he wants them to live in God's place under God's rule so that he, they can maintain their relationship with him, with their God. He tells them, what should the covenant community be like? How should the redeemed live? How do we walk in the favor of God and in fellowship with God? That's the big picture of our text today as well. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 23. We're going to cover the whole chapter today. And from this text, we want to try to answer this question, what kind of people does God call us to be as his people? What kind of community does God want? What's that core, some of those core characteristics? Now, the answer to that question goes beyond what our text is going to tell us, obviously. But we're going to see three truths today that help us answer that question. And we can summarize those with three words, guard, abide, and reflect. We are to guard the sanctity of God's people, abide in God's presence and power, and reflect God's character in word and deed. So let's look at these. First, let's 
look at guard the sanctity of God's people. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 8. God's people should be a holy people. Now, these verses address who may or may not enter into the assembly of the Lord. That phrase is used six times in eight verses. So it's clear here that, that guarding the sanctity of the congregation is the primary concern of this passage. Now, the assembly of the Lord in this context is referring to the gathering of God's people in his presence for worship. The law doesn't exclude somebody. This isn't about excluding somebody from living in Israel, but from full participation in temple worship. So in verses, and it splits into two sort of unequal parts. In verses 1 through 6, Moses is going to put some walls around the assembly, and then in verses 7 and 8, he's going to open up some doors to the assembly. So first, Moses outlines three groups of people who may not enter the assembly of the Lord. They are, first, emasculated men, verse 1, children of forbidden unions, verse 2, and third, certain foreigners, verses 3 through 6. Now, the first are excluded because they're blemished. Uh, This is similar to uh, the priests in Leviticus 21, verses 16 through 24. The second were excluded because these forbidden unions like incest and prostitution were abominations to the Lord, Leviticus 18, 26, and 27. And the third group, the Ammonites and Moabites, are excluded because, verse 4 says, they refused Israel bread and water when they came out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam to curse them, verse 4. But Moses, he says, the Lord turned the curse into a blessing for you because he loved you. I just think it's so cool that Moses does not miss this opportunity uh, to exalt the Lord for his steadfast love for his sovereign uh, protection and provision over his people. He, he, he's talking about this, and he sort of has a tangent, but look at what God did. He turned this curse into a blessing because he loves you. And I just want to say, as a side note this morning, share your God stories because they strengthen people's faith and they bring glory to God. Share the stories of how God is at work in your life or what he's done in your past. So Moses, then he says uh, that these nations, he's talking about these nations, and they brought a curse on themselves according to God's word in Genesis 12, 3. God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So because of this, Israel was never to seek the peace and prosperity of these nations. Most likely this means that they're not supposed to enter into a treaty of peace with them as a nation, not necessarily individually, but nation to nation. So Moses has been building some walls, and again, the goal is guarding the sanctity of the assembly. And then in verse 7, he opens the door uh, to the Edomites and the Egyptians. He opens the door to the Edomites because of uh, their kinship with Israel. Remember, they are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, and to the Egyptians because of their hospitality during the famine in Canaan. That was a really vulnerable point in Israel's history, and so he said, look, In the third generation, uh, the the Egyptians can enter into the assembly. That's pretty remarkable when you consider the more recent history of them being oppressed as slaves in Egypt. But the third generation, the grandchildren of resident aliens from either Edom or Egypt who were living in the land, they could enter the assembly of the Lord, of course, provided they believed and committed themselves to the covenant. Now, what's perhaps more surprising 
is that Ruth, a Moabite, was welcomed into God's people, and she's held up in Scripture as a worthy woman. Uh, Ruth chapter 3, verse 11. That phrase, worthy woman, it's only used one other place, and it's in Proverbs to describe the excellent wife. She rejected the gods of Moab. She found shelter under the wings of the Lord, Ruth 2.12. Ruth is this example, this Old Testament example of somebody who is outside the covenant, who becomes part of the people of God through faith alone. And that is the trajectory of the Bible. So Isaiah envisions this day when both eunuchs and foreigners, these two people who just got excluded, would find an honored place among God's people. Thus, he, he's in effect repealing their exclusion from the assembly. So God promised, as we just heard read from Isaiah 56, uh, this is what uh, God promised. He says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So Isaiah's vision is looking forward to this day when eunuchs and foreigners are going to be full participants in the worship of God among God's people. A day when the assembly of the Lord is going to extend to those who were previously excluded and this wall of separation is torn down. And so that work happens through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19, we learn that the Gentiles who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, they were strangers to the covenant of promise, they were without God, they had no hope, those who were far off are brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. God breaks down, Jesus breaks down this dividing wall of hostility, creating one new people of God, so that the Gentiles, Paul says, are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and members of the household of God. As one commentator pointed out, we see a little bit of, of God's humor in the fact that one of the first and most notable converts to Christianity was both a eunuch and a foreigner, and he was reading Isaiah when he got saved, the Ethiopian eunuch, which we just read about in Acts 8. You see, Jesus ransoms people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Now, what's the application for us? Well, first of all, all people are welcomed into the assembly of the Lord. Anyone may enter the covenant community through faith in Jesus Christ. That's good news. The forgiveness of sins, peace with God, welcome into God's household, that's available to all, anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ to save them. There's no other way to heaven. There's two roads. One road leads to heaven. One road leads to hell. 
The question is, which one are you on? Which road are you traveling right now? Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the door. Anyone who enters by me will be saved, John 10, 9. So we have this beautiful trajectory in redemption history of all people being welcomed into the assembly of God's people, the covenant community by faith in Jesus Christ. So the message is, yes, absolutely, come as you are. But it's not stay as you are. Jesus welcomes everyone to come, and as he does, he says, now take up your cross and follow me. So second then, we're still called to guard the sanctity of God's people, the church. God's people still need to be a holy people, set apart from wickedness, serving Jesus Christ in faithfulness. So Paul writes in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, he's, he says, You who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus reconciled to God by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So that leads to a question. Are there any people who are excluded from the assembly today? And the answer is yes, there are. Those who are living in persistent, unrepentant sin are to be disciplined. And if they continue in persistent, unrepentant sin, they're to be excluded from the fellowship. As a church, we are not to tolerate those who live in persistent, unrepentant sin. So the church in Corinth was tolerating uh, someone who was living in this persistent kind of sin when they should have, as Paul said, removed the sinner from among them, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. So Paul says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord, deliver them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that is, the destruction of their sin so that his spirit may be saved, verse 4 and 5. They were to purge the evil person from among them, verse 13. Why? Well, there are several reasons, but discipline for the sinner is meant to be restorative. It's meant to make them repent and return to the Lord Jesus. That's what this is talking about right here. The discipline for the sinner is to get them to a place of repentance, so they'll walk with, in faith again. But the discipline uh, for the church is to guard its purity, its sanctity. How? Well, in several ways. First, it protects people from the effects of sin. If you allow sin to continue to go unchecked, then you're also allowing the effects of that sin to go unchecked in the church. But it also deters other people from sin, and it guards the witness of the church. So for these reasons, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, so cleanse out that old leaven. Instead, live in sincerity and truth as you really are, unleavened, without sin. He's using this, this illustration here. Now, I have this glass of water here, and I'm just going to, I don't have a flat surface here. I'm going to set this glass of water right here, but I also have this little glass bottle, and in it, this blue liquid represents a poison. Now, 
This isn't actual poison. <laughs> Why'd the pastor bring poison to church? Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's just water with food coloring, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but I assure you that the poison that it represents is real. I learned about this poison uh, in pharmacy school. Now, even just a little bit of this poison is very damaging for, for us. Um, a clinical toxicologist was describing this poison, and, and your body, when it gets inside, your body breaks it down into several different chemicals that affect your blood chemistry, your nervous system, your respiratory system, and your kidneys. Yes, it can kill you. Uh, the amount that I have in this little bottle would be enough to kill an adult if you ingested it. So even tiny amounts of this, very, very dangerous. If you survived, there can be permanent damage to your heart, to your kidneys. It can even cause blindness. All right, now, with all that information, would you be okay if I just dumped a little bit of this poison, not too much, just a bit, into this glass? Would you be okay with that? Would you want to drink this? No. Of course you wouldn't want to drink this. If it was real poison, you wouldn't want to drink this at all. What you want is clean, pure drinking water. Why? Because when the poison's in it, what's meant for your health, what's meant for your good, this water is no longer good for you. It's bad for you, right? This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about how a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If a person is living in persistent, unrepentant sin, the final remedy is to remove them from the congregation. They're like a poison that will damage the whole body. Now, most church discipline does not reach the point of excommunication because when confronted, most people repent. This is the last phase of church discipline for those who refuse to repent. And again, for, it's for their sake and for the health of the body, they must be removed. Now, of course, if they repent of their sin and begin to obey and follow Christ again, then they're welcomed back into the assembly of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. The point is, is that we are still called to guard the sanctity of God's assembly, the purity, the holiness. And what's our job as believers? Well, first of all, Guard your own holiness. This isn't about perfection, but about ongoing repentance and faith and obedience to the Lord. Second, we guard the holiness of the church. Most church discipline is done from believer to believer. You, the church body, are the first line of defense in guarding the sanctity of the church. Because when you confront sin in another person's life and that person repents and there is forgiveness and there's reconciliation and they begin to walk with the Lord again, then it's done. It's over. And most of that never comes to our attention. That's just happening all the time. So you are the first line of defense in guarding the sanctity of God's people. So I want to emphasize that while salvation is unconditional... We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all people are welcome to come. The ongoing participation in the worship community is conditioned on ongoing obedience. 
The church welcomes all those of genuine faith, but the church also maintains God's standards of holiness for ongoing fellowship. All right, second, abide in the presence and power of God. Or we could say, walk with God, for apart from him you can do nothing. We see this in verses 9 through 14. This is the principle that we see here. So having ex- instructed the, the, the people to guard the sanctity of the assembly, Moses now gives them some instructions for maintaining the purity of their military camp when they go to war. Look at verse 9. When you're encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. And here he's talking about guarding against anything ritually unclean. And he gives two examples ritual washings after a nocturnal emission, and setting up a place outside the camp to go to the bathroom. Now, we could, we could list a lot of other examples. The, the issue here, the concern is, look at verse 14, anything indecent. The soldiers were to keep the camp pure. Why? The reason is given in verse 14. Look there with me. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. So if they want to remain in, uh, they, if they want God to remain present with them, they need to be holy because he is holy. And God's presence was their key to victory. He was there to protect his people, to give their enemies into, into their hands. So to defile their camp with anything indecent would would risk causing him to turn away from them, verse 14. God wouldn't be be with them in battle. Now that's bad news. That's like going to war without any weapons. Their, Their victory, their success, hinged on God's presence and power with them. And God's presence with them depended on their purity, their holiness. And so it is for us. God's presence with us requires that we obey Him, that we strive for holiness. That's true of us for individuals and for the church corporately. Just like Jesus says, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. John 15, 4. Now, you don't have to be a gardener to see the truth of this. It's true of any plant. If I cut off the branch of my zucchini plant, this summer, then that branch is no longer going to produce zucchinis. And then I'm not going to have as much chocolate zucchini bread, which is the whole purpose for growing that vegetable in the first place. Right? Because why else would you grow zucchini? I got an amen for that. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's the same truth. If God's not with them when they go into battle, that's it. You can't do it. Here again, if God is not with you, apart from him, you can do nothing. That truth is repeated in different ways throughout the whole Bible. Abide with him, for apart from him, you can do nothing. Now, the million-dollar question is, how do we abide with him? And Jesus tells us, if you keep my commands, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love, John 15, 10. In the same way that he says to them, keep your purity, keep your holiness, and I will be with you. If you keep God's commands, you will abide in his 
love. It's by faithful obedience that we abide in God's love. He remains with, with us and we with him, and in this way we bear much fruit. Now, of course, abiding with the Lord means maintaining our relationship with him. It includes reading our Bibles and spending time in prayer and all these other things. But at the end of the day, if you don't obey the Lord, you will not remain in close communion with him, in close fellowship with him. If you disobey, God may withdraw his hand of blessing from you, bring discipline into your life in order to draw you back to himself. Now, to give an imperfect analogy, consider the, the love that a father has for their child. In one sense, it's unconditional. Regardless of what they do, parents love their, their children. They're going to love them. But in another sense, our kids must remain in our love through their obedience. If your son or daughter disobeys, there's going to be consequences. Perhaps some restrictions, perhaps the removal of some privileges. Even though we still love them, and in fact, we're acting out of love for them, at the moment, they don't experience that love. They're not experiencing our love from them or its blessings. And so it is with us when we disobey God. We don't experience the joy of close communion or his blessings when we're walking in sin. The question is, are you abiding with Christ? Or have you allowed sin in your life to hinder your fellowship with him and his favor on you? There is a sense in which God's favor depends on our faithfulness. Not as it relates to our salvation, but as it relates to our walk with God. So, for example, we read, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Or again, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way that your prayers may not be hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7. So our sin becomes like a wall that impedes the flow of God's grace. This is a powerful motivation for holiness in our lives and in the church. A part of God's love is conditional on our obedience to him. The, the caveat here is that hardships aren't necessarily an indication of sin. I don't want you to, to think, okay, if I obey the Lord, I have God's favor, but I'm experiencing something hard, so that must mean I must have done something sinful to, to be in this situation. And that's not true. Much suffering is simply a result of living in a fallen world, or it's the result of somebody else's sin. Nevertheless, the point remains, if we want to experience God's favor to the full, we have to remain faithful to Him, striving for holiness. God's presence and power are experienced most by those who walk with Him in purity. That's true no matter what the circumstances of our life may be, good or bad. And I want to stress here that we should be hungry for the presence of God in our life. That, that this doesn't come to you and you don't receive this this morning as like a duty. No, 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 no. Because the Bible teaches us that in his presence there is fullness of joy. It is, it is very good to be in the presence of God, to walk in close fellowship with God. So, so, 
You should be eager for this. You should be eagerly pursuing closeness with the Lord through faithfulness to him because that's where it's at. (laughs) It's very good. Are you with me there, church? Okay. So walk with God, for apart from him you can do nothing. And that leads us to point three. Reflect God's character in word and deed. The character of God's people is godliness. What kind of people should we be? We're going to see five marks of God's people in this last portion of our text. And we'll move through these pretty quickly because we've seen several of these before in Deuteronomy. So first, sanctuary, verses 15 and 16. God's people are to be a refuge for people who are in need. Verse 15, you shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. Moses here is talking about slaves who have escaped from foreign lands and come into Israel. They're not to be returned to their masters. They're free to live anywhere they want without fear of being mistreated. Now, we already covered the subject of slavery in chapter 15, so I'm not going to go into that in depth. If you want more in-depth treatment, go to that sermon. But I do want to note here that Israel's law, this law, is completely unique in the ancient Near East. The laws of other nations had severe penalties for runaway slaves and for anyone who harbored them, up to and including death. That was also true in the more recent slave law in the United States. So to forbid them from handing over escaped slaves is directly opposed to standard slave law, both ancient and modern. It challenged the accepted norms for how slaves were to be treated, and it has to be seen as a critique of the institution itself. Now, there are still forms of slavery today that we should oppose, that we should fight, that we should stand for justice and freedom. But broadly speaking, God's people should be a refuge for people facing all kinds of hardship. So here I think about the church in Moldova and Poland who have welcomed refugees who are fleeing from the war in Ukraine. Here I think about uh, adoption and foster care, parents receiving uh, children into their home who are escaping from various kinds of hardships in their home, or simply making your home a place of refuge for people who are hurting and in need. Just as God rescued us and welcomed us and is our refuge, so we should be a sanctuary to others. Second, purity, verses 17 and 18. God's people should be pure. There should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among God's people. Ephesians 5, verse 3. Verse 17 teaches no sons or daughters of Israel should be cult prostitutes. And verse 18 teaches that those wages are unacceptable to the Lord for any purpose. It's dirty money. Both the act and the wages are an abomination to God. So any money gained by unrighteous means, whether stealing, extortion, fraud, gambling, immoral business practices, or immoral work, is dirty money. It's unacceptable to God. So there's an implicit call for us as God's people to earn an honest income by honest means. But the main issue here is purity. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, 
not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because God is an avenger in all these things. We've talked about this before in Deuteronomy. Anything outside of the context of one man and one woman in marriage is a sin and it's off limits. There are a lot of applications for this. We can talk about purity before marriage, like Pastor Jonathan did last week. But one other application is pornography. Pornography should have no place among God's people. Now, if you're struggling with this sin, Satan wants to keep it in the dark so that you can't get victory and freedom. That's where he wants it. So let me just say, bring it to the light. Tell your parents, come tell one of us as pastors, so you can get help and get freedom and victory. There's freedom and victory in Jesus Christ over this sin. Don't leave it in the dark. Just as God is light, he is perfect, there's no unrighteousness in him, he calls us as his people to be children of light. Holy, pure. Third, generosity. 19 and 20. God's people are to give willingly and generously to help those in need. We covered this in chapter 15 as well. I'll just note again, this law forbidding interest on loans or anything else to their countrymen is totally unique in the ancient Near East. They had crazy interest rates, ranging anywhere from 20% to 50%. The fact that these loans were to be interest-free is completely different than the ancient Near East. Now, the point for them giving loans, again, like we saw, it was to help someone in financial crisis to keep them out of poverty. But if you start charging interest, you're not alleviating the problem, you're aggravating the problem. So God didn't want that for his people. That's why to be blameless was not to put your money out in interest, Psalm 15, 6. Now, they didn't ban interest on foreigners because those were merchants and traders, not farmers in crisis. The point is that God's people are not to be greedy or selfish, but generous and grateful, thanking God for his provision. We recognize as God's people that everything that we have is a gift from him, and we steward it for him for the good of others. Christians are not people who profit on other people's misfortunes. Christians put people before profit, even if it costs them. We look to not just our own interests, but also to the interests of others, Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. So just as God spared nothing in giving his only son and proves himself so gracious in his provision for us, we should reflect his generosity in giving of ourselves and our resources to others. Fourth, integrity. We see this in verses 21 and 23. God's people are marked by honesty and we keep our word, just like God always keeps his word. Look at verse 23. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So vows are completely optional. You don't have to make a vow, but once you do make a vow, you need to keep it without delay. That's what he is saying here. If you don't, you're guilty of sin. This is why the Bible warns about making hasty promises, Proverbs 20, 25, and elsewhere. So just like every other command, this is rooted in God's character. God always keeps his word. He never fails to keep his promises, and so he can be trusted. If we're going to reflect him as his people, we have to keep our word. Now, in a, in, in a culture that is marked by liars and cheats, in a culture marked by divorce, 
and broken wedding vows? This is sorely needed. Now, it starts with honesty in the little things. If you're not honest in the little things, you're not going to be honest in the big things. So kids, listen to me. Be honest in everything. Just be honest with your parents. Be honest even in the little things. Learn to be honest, and you'll be honest in the big things. Psalm 15.5 says, One who is blameless swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, even if it costs us, we keep our word. If you make a promise, keep it. Even if it's painful to follow through with it. This is especially true with our marriage vows. Now Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and anything beyond this comes from the evil one, Matthew 5, 37. The point is, is that we should be so trustworthy, we should be people of such integrity that we don't need to swear an oath to get someone to believe us or to trust us. Because we keep our word. Christians are people of integrity that people can count on to keep their word. Finally, hospitality and respect for property. Verse 24 teaches, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, (laughs) you may eat your fill of grapes, but you're not allowed to fill up your bag or bucket and haul off with them. And then verse 25 teaches essentially the same thing with grain. Go pick as much grain as you want to satisfy your hunger at the moment, but you don't get to take a sickle and start harvesting their grain and like walk off with it. So this law, it's cool, it does two things at the same time. It fosters a generous hospitality on the one hand from the landowner, and at the same time, it fosters a respect for personal property on the other hand. Right? We help each other, but, but you don't get to take advantage of, of somebody. They can meet their momentary need, but not go beyond that. This, this, like all of these laws, is putting practical flesh on the, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But what we see here is that that love goes both ways. You see that? It's not one-directional. It's multi-directional. This was often misunderstood and misapplied during COVID. The love your neighbor command was applied to protecting people's health, but not protecting their livelihood. Or vice versa. The point is that God's people are marked by love for one another, and that love goes in all directions. That's why love for your neighbor is the fulfilling of all the commands. We look out for each other, but we don't take advantage of each other. So who has a need that you can help meet? And April 30th is Hospitality Sunday. I'm giving you an advance warning. So you can start thinking in advance. Who who are you going to have over to your house? Right? Who is the person who you need to be a refuge to? What non-believer... Oh, church, I really want us to start thinking about hospitality to non-believers. Okay? What non-believer can you welcome into your home to build relationship with them so that you might welcome them into the assembly of God. Amen? Now, the overall application of this third point is simply to reflect God's character. We just looked at five marks of God's people. Sanctuary, purity, generosity, integrity, and hospitality. There are many others, many, many others. 
I want you to know that God is at work in your life right now to help you put off the old self and put on the new self, which is created, being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4.24. So I just want to encourage you to ask and answer this question for yourself today. What's my next step of faith that I need to take to reflect God's character? Now, it could be one of the five areas that we just looked at, or it could be another area entirely. The question is, where is God calling you to grow? Walk by the Spirit, because that's where His power and His presence is found. I want you to know that God has not left you to yourself. God's divine power has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. He has granted to you all of his great and precious promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, so that you might be like him. So what kind of people does God want us to be? He wants us to guard the the sanctity of, of the assembly. He wants us to abide in his power and his presence, and he wants us to reflect his character in word and deed. That's what he wants. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask and pray that by your Spirit that you would do this work in our lives. Again, we're reminded of the fact that apart from you, we can do nothing. So help us to abide with you. And God, through your Spirit, bear much fruit in our lives for the good of others, for the good of your church, and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.